Welcome to the History Guy podcast, the podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel, and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. This episode of Forgotten History is brought to you by Magellan TV, a new kind of streaming service dedicated to bringing you the best documentaries from around the world. On today's episode, the History Guy is going to talk about the adventures of some fantastic frauds, two men who spent much of their time lying to the world. The first is Titanic Thompson, the alleged inspiration for Sky Masterson of the musical Guys and Dolls, a wagerer who even cheated Al Capone. After a chat, the History Guy will tell the story also of Stanley Wayman, the fabulous fraud from Brooklyn who spent much of his life brazenly pretending to be someone else and even bluffed his way into the White House. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. A gambler once bet Al Capone, a dangerous man, that he could throw a lemon all the way to the top of a five-story building in a single throw. After Capone took the crazy bet, the man walked up to a street vendor and picked up a lemon and went to throw it, but sensing that this might be some sort of trick, Capone instead picked up his own lemon, squeezed all the juice out of it, handed it to the man, and said, no, throw this. Unfazed, the man took a long running jump and threw as hard as he could, and to Al Capone's shock, the lemon went all the way to the top of the building and landed on the roof. What Capone didn't know is that that gambler had already palmed the squished fruit that Capone had given him and had instead thrown a lemon that was full of buckshot that he had placed on the vendor earlier in preparation for his outrageous bet. That gambler was a man named Alvin Thomas, but he went by the name Titanic Thompson, and among the people of his profession, he was truly a titan. The history of who is perhaps the world's greatest wagerer deserves to be remembered. Alvin Clarence Thomas was born in 1893 in rural Missouri near the small town of Monnet. The last name, Thompson, that he would adopt for most of his adult life came from a later newspaper misprint that he embraced as his own. According to the family history, his father was gambling the night Alvin was born and didn't see his new son until he came home the next day. Apparently his father couldn't handle the new responsibilities that came with having a child, so he took whatever cash he could find in the house and left. Alvin's mother didn't spend time bemoaning her fate. She quickly remarried and ensured Alvin had a roof over his head. Thomas's new stepfather wasn't particularly fond of the boy, but taught him how to play cards and roll dice. Alvin took to the games far more quickly than he absorbed anything else. Later in life, Thompson said he couldn't read, but numbers and odds always made sense to him. He spent hours sitting alone in his room, teaching himself to adeptly shuffle cards, practicing dealing from the bottom of the deck more quickly than the eye could follow. Thompson developed his own method of marking cards by putting spots on the back or bending the edges to be able to tell face cards by feel. He practiced throwing playing cards into a hat over and over again, or tossing dice, figuring out how to hold them and make them land like he wanted. Thompson would write down the results of his dice throws, calculating odds and combinations, long before others considered gambling a science of sorts. But he wanted more than science. Thompson strove to elevate gambling to an art form. He practiced shooting, jumping, and other simple skills like throwing coins into a cup to the point where his execution of them made him seem extraordinary. According to Kevin Cook, author of the book Titanic Thompson, The Man Who Bet on Everything, Thompson said, If a thing's hard to do, 
Most folks are too lazy to do it. That puts me one up on them. Alvin left home at the age of 16. He only had 50 cents to his name, but he wasn't worried. He would always say, I've been broke, but never for more than six hours at a time. He promised his mother that he wouldn't drink or smoke, and he kept those promises, although he engaged in numerous other vices. When he was in high-stakes games, he would drink water or milk while the other high rollers were dulling their senses with alcohol. And that was just fine by him. In Monet, Thompson discovered a man selling maps on the street. He offered to sell maps for a percentage of the money and soon was wandering door to door selling maps. When the luster wore off that job, Thompson joined a sharpshooter named Captain Adam Henry Bogardus and his Bogardus Miracle Medicine Show. Thompson wowed Bogardus with his shooting abilities and together they built Roll Americans out of their money with promises of medicine that could cure almost anything that was wrong with you, from gout to crossed eyes. In actuality, the medicine was a mix of cocaine and alcohol, which probably gave people bursts of energy, if nothing else. Thompson drew attention to the show by bragging he could shoot a silver dollar out of the air with one shot. The trick was to substitute a real silver dollar with a pre-punctured one and throw it in the air while pulling the trigger. Thompson was already able to palm items like a pro and fooled audiences with the trick. After he left the traveling medicine show, Thompson began crisscrossing the country looking for games and offering unsuspecting people propositions that he was certain to win. It was in a pool hall in Joplin, Missouri in 1912 that Thompson added the Titanic to his name. He had just won a couple of hundred dollars off of a local pool player when, on his way out the door, he read a sign offering $200 to the person who could jump over the pool table without touching it. Thompson announced to the room that he'd take the bet. He walked out and returned later with a mattress that he positioned on the other side of the pool table. Then, taking a running start, he threw himself over the table, head first, and landed on the mattress on the other side without touching the table and collecting on the bet. An onlooker asked what the gambler's name was, and, according to legend, another replied, It must be Titanic, because he sinks everybody. Thompson had dedication and skill, but he wasn't above shifting the odds with a bit of guile. Once he heard of a skilled horseshoe pitcher named Frank Jackson, who bragged that he would bet any amount on a game of horseshoes. Thompson saw opportunity, but there was a problem. He'd never played horseshoes. He practiced and practiced until he was ready. He baited Jackson by telling some kids he could beat anyone at horseshoes. As he planned, Jackson showed up after he heard of the boast. Thompson offered to play for $10, but Jackson balked, saying he played for real money. So Thompson offered to play for $10 thousand dollars, saying it was all the money I have, and flashing a wad of bills. The hook was set. They played, and Thompson ringed three in a row, while Jackson's throws kept coming up, a foot short. Jackson lost ten thousand dollars, wondering why his throws were so weak that day. Apparently, Jackson never found out that Thompson had set the stakes forty-one feet apart, a foot more than the forty-foot regulation. More serious trouble found Thompson when he killed a man with a hammer in 1910. It had been a good night for Thompson before the killing. He had won a riverboat through gambling and was playing craps on that same boat with Jim Johnson. Thompson's girlfriend, Nellie, was with him as he won roll after roll. Johnson, drunk and out of sorts, accused Thompson of cheating and threw him overboard into the dark river. By the time Thompson climbed back on the boat, Johnson had torn Nellie's clothes in multiple places and was threatening to take out his frustrations with Thompson on her. Thompson was having none of it. He beat Johnson about the head with a hammer and threw the unconscious man into the river, where he drowned. The local sheriff showed up to sort out the trouble and offered Thompson a choice. He'd either come to jail and face charges of murder, or give the sheriff the boat and get out of town. Thompson gave up his boat and left. 
The four other men Thompson would kill during his lifetime, he claimed, were trying to rob him. He got off every time. Perhaps it was this early violent experience on the river that convinced Thompson that women had no place on the road with him. But throughout his life, Thompson refused to take any of his five wives on his travels. Thompson preferred his wives to be young and beautiful, even in his later years. His first marriage to 18-year-old Nora Trushel ended in divorce when he refused to get a normal job to spend time at home with her or to stop seeing other women while on the road. Alice Kane, his second wife, was a con man's kindred spirit. Thompson said he met black-haired Alice when she tried to pick his pocket in Pittsburgh. She was 17 years old and he was 25. He brought her an enormous diamond ring and married her a month after their initial meeting. A week after their first anniversary, Thompson was drafted in order to report to Camp Zachary Taylor in Kentucky. He was made a sergeant and used his position to teach the other soldiers how to play five-card stud and craps. The First World War ended and Thompson went home without having to serve overseas. He used some of his gains to buy a new home for his long-suffering mother. Thompson didn't hesitate to take money from anyone he beat. In fact, Thompson sometimes thought that arrogant rich folks had the fleecing coming to them. He hustled and conned his way through poker games, craps, pool games, propositions, and a game he showed enormous promise for, golf. I went purely crazy over golf, Thompson said later. He could play naturally left-handed, so a typical con would be play a golfer right-handed, and then offer double or nothing to play another game, this time with his left hand. He usually won. The trouble was finding marks who didn't know his face or reputation. Thompson gained some notoriety after appearing as a key witness in the murder trial of crime boss Arnold Rothstein in New York. Thompson had played in a high-stakes poker game lasting hours and, with the help of an associate in the room, had swindled Rothstein out of thousands of dollars. Rothstein put off the debt by paying with IOUs. He was hoping to make enough money betting on the presidential election of 1928 to pay off those markers. Rothstein never made it to November 6th. On November 4th, George Hump McManus, the man who had hosted and organized the game, asked Rothstein to come over and discuss his debt. Later that night, Rothstein was found on the street, bleeding from a gunshot to his groin. He died in the hospital without revealing the attacker. McManus was tried for the crime. When Thompson was called to the stand, the lawyer asked what his occupation was. Thompson replied, I play a little golf for money. He was also asked about the five men he had killed. The court recorded Thompson's response. They needed it. Partially due to Thompson's testimony that McManus wasn't a man to kill over a debt, McManus was freed. Later in life, Thompson told his friends he believed one of McManus's bodyguards was the shooter. The itinerant gambling lifestyle faded away with the invention of the modern era of telegraphs and the professional gamblers of Las Vegas. Thompson said you couldn't cheat in Vegas with their waxy cards and video cameras. He was paid to appear at the first World Series of Poker, and he co-hosted with Chill Wills, the actor. Thompson's wife, Alice, died young after she was hit by a car while Thompson was away at work. He married three more times, divorcing each. His final wife, Jeanette Bennett, said they divorced so Thompson could afford to go into a retirement home. He had gambled his entire life, but was living off his Social Security checks because he hadn't invested any of it. Thompson died in Texas at the retirement home in May of 1974. He was 80 years old. Author Dibbon Runyon's short story, The Idols of Miss Sarah Brown, upon which the musical Guys and Dolls was based, has a character named Sky Masterson, who is played by Marlon Brando in the movie. Runyon is said to have based Sky Masterson on Titanic Thompson, after he heard Thompson say of a bet, The sky's the limit. Runyon also wrote, almost prophetically, 
someday, somewhere, a guy is going to come to you and show you a nice brand new deck of cards on which the seal is never broken. And this guy is going to offer to bet you that the Jack of Spades will jump out of this deck and squirt cider in your ear. But son, do not bet him. For as sure as you do, you are going to get an ear full of cider. The legendary Titanic Thompson left a legacy of quite a few ears full of cider, but more than that, he also left a memory of a life spent on the road, always in search of the next big score, and a man whose only love was Lady Luck. Now's the part of the podcast where we get to chat with the history guy about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and of course some behind-the-scenes stuff you'll only hear about on the podcast. Today we also have Heidi, who wrote the Titanic Thompson script. I think Titanic Thompson is a, is a good example of something to watch out for because you really you really never know when you're talking to a potential Titanic Thompson. Sky High Masterson was the character they based Titanic Thompson, you know, off of. At least that's according to yeah. legend that, you know, uh, one day, son, you know, a man's going to come to you and bet, you know, however much that his card is going to spit lemon juice in your ear, however he said it. And he says, but don't take that bet because as sure as I'm standing here, that card will, you know, shoot lemon juice in your ear or whatever kind of juice it was. And I, um, it reminded me of my grandpa, actually. Um, he was a, um, a stock market guy. He liked to, to play, you know, with, with trades and things like that. And um, part of his strategy for what he would trade um, would be based on funny little games he would play during the day. Like as he was driving down the road, um, if he saw a truck um, transporting some goods, he would always write down the, the name of the company who owned the truck. And so I was like, Grandpa, why, why do you do that? You know, why do you, that's kind of, why do you do that? And he said, well, I do it because then when I get home, the companies that I see the most that are out there that are moving things around, I invest in those because they're the ones getting it done. They're the ones that I see. And so I, so it kind of reminded me of that, this, this practical approach to life that, um, he was he was incredibly skilled at golf, which I, I think a lot of people dismiss because he played so many, you know, con games to, to get money. But he was a true athlete. He was a true um, sleight of hand uh, guy, you know, where he would just practice something over and over and over again until it was almost seemed superhuman what he could do with a coin or with cards or with, you know, throwing a, what, what was it he bet Al Capone? That I he could throw a lemon on a roof. That yeah. I could throw that lemon over the roof or on the roof. And, and yet he would find a way to do it. But also, so there's that element of, of practicality, but also the, the will to do it. You know, I, I can't help but respect that, you know, will to do things that other people think can't be done. Um, maybe if he had applied that, in a way that was more acceptable to society, maybe yeah. he would have even lived a life that was even more impressive. But the fact of the matter is, um, he's worth remembering because he did some really extraordinary things. Yeah, I don't think, I wouldn't call him a hero. You suggest that any of your, our viewers say, oh, model your life after him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I hope that we don't have anybody on there, oh, okay, I can cheat my way through life. Uh, but it is, uh, it's interesting at least to say that even, even bad guys have to be good at what they do. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's, that's he does seem unique no. because i mean he was he was happy to cheat or or you know do the thing where he's like I, it's it um the princess bride kind of thing where he golfs with the right hand 
or and then yes, and then yeah. it comes back he's like oh well what you don't know is i'm left-handed right, <laughs> and to, right, to do right. the double or nothing but he really was uh, he practiced so much and that that is the inspiring part of the story is that he if he didn't know how to do it he would practice it he practiced the how to throw the horseshoes or and that that kind of stuff he he becomes an expert at it and so even though he might nudge the odds a little in his favor or sometimes outright cheat like throwing the already shot coins in the air um yeah, he's yeah. he can still be somewhat inspiring and then if he ended up killing a couple of people right that for various reasons he said he was defense or uh yeah pretty much everything that happened he called self-defense so you want to believe him but do you i don't do you right that's the i haven't looked at each each specific uh example but it does you do wonder a little bit you're like uh, you know maybe if you self-defense kill like one guy but once you're you've got you know four or five on right. that list and, and yeah, you start to think little. well maybe it's me he, he puts himself into that position yes, and then then he's yes. like oh but i had to defend myself so i mean he also chose a dangerous profession so i i i think the fairest thing to say is if you look at if you look at his intellect and his skill this guy could have been anything and uh and you know is it tragic that he wasn't a brain surgeon um you know maybe so i don't know but i mean i think what's attractive about him is that he's just such a character and he and he just did such just brass stuff i mean the guy was just not afraid that's cool it's, and that makes him a, a fun character but i mean is the world a better place because of the titanic thompson i i don't know if i would say that i mean sometimes we get into discussions on this channel over what is heroism this isn't heroism uh but uh but it certainly uh, is a unique personality, and unique personalities deserve to be remembered. Yeah, not everybody we feature is a is a hero. Yep, I think that's fair. <laughs> we try to make it clear that we're not, you know, we're not trying to make out some of these people as heroes. But he has a life that is certainly exciting to uh, to listen to and to hear about. I think that that leads pretty well into the, you know, what what can we learn from the life of someone like Titanic Thompson. From from my end, uh, I think that the the comical one is you should definitely invest your money because uh, if you don't, because <laughs> he ends up living at a in a old folks home because he living off of social security paychecks because he didn't he didn't invest anything or save anything, um, even though he was at times I think reasonably wealthy. Um, yeah, I I think uh, planning for the future is something you can learn. I think we should also consider the question of. What do you focus on? What are your priorities? Um, because you can have a drive that can lead you to perform, you know, pretty astonishing feats. But if it's not in the service of a greater cause than just lining your own pockets, is it really worth the time and the effort invested into it? Um, I, I don't know. No, but I mean, he's also the lesson you can learn is that if you practice and you use skill, you can be successful. I think that's that's part of it. You know, there's something to be said. Uh, we, he talked about gambling. He says, never gamble and go for sure bets. Uh, and there's something to be said about that in life, too, is that you don't always have to be taking risks. That if you plan, uh, then you can succeed because you're planning to succeed. You're not you're not just gambling with your dice. And that's one of the things about it. So I, I hope you don't take from him that, you know, cheat. Uh, <laughs> I, I hope that's not the lesson that we're learning. But maybe the, the lesson that you're learning is that you can be extraordinary. I mean, you can you can be such a good cheater that you can cheat Al Capone. Uh, then, yeah. you know, that, that says that if you apply yourself, you can do, you know, incredible things. And, you know, you got, you got, to, appreciate, you got to appreciate his moxie. You really do. I mean, the, the, the fact that he didn't, you're talking about that he, you know, he died poor. He, the fact that he didn't die in an alley, but the holes in him. No, that's true, too. He, he didn't survive. 
Yeah, that's that's yeah. yeah that's, that's, that's I thought about too. that with with Al Capone is that that's an awfully gutsy move to be to not only not you know take a bet with Al Capone but know you're gonna cheat him the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like I don't know that I'd do that. He's kind of a dangerous guy. Maybe uh maybe choose someone who isn't doesn't have a reputation for gunning people down who <laughs> treat him wrong. <laughs> um, but he's I think that's I mean one of the things is is that that's you know that's a legendary kind of thing. I cheated Al Capone out of some money by uh, palming a, a lemon full of buckshot, yeah. buckshot so that I could throw it farther. <laughs> like that's, that's a, I think a lot of people wish that they could, they could reach that level of legendary, but most of us are uh, risk, at least, at least enough risk averse not to do that. <laughs> well, and who knows how many tried and, you know, failed and then uh, we don't know their names. No, we remember, we remember Thompson because he succeeded. He succeeded because he was not given concrete overshoes and thrown in Lake Superior. Yeah, he. You hear that story that you because you open the story with him cheating Al Capone, and it is kind of incredible that that's not the ending of the story. Yeah. <laughs> that he goes, he goes on to do all this these other the amazing things, yeah. right? So this episode is sponsored by Magellan TV. We love Magellan TV. I've been a member of Magellan TV for a couple of years now. We work with them on the YouTube channel. We work with them here. It's run by the documentary filmmakers. It's all documentary film. There's more than 3,000 of them. It's really all the stuff you can do, streaming and all the subscription services and stuff that you do today. You're not going to get to one that's better than one where it is literally run by the people that make it. Fantastic. We love Magellan TV. If you are a fan of the History Guide, then there's always some sort of discount going on at, at Magellan TV. If you go to www.trymagellantv.com slash historyguy, there's going to be a discount for you to sign up. Uh, if you've never tried it before, go on. You'll probably get some sort of free trial through that. And uh, you can. I think what you'll find is that you really love Magellan TV. There's a lot of cool things on Magellan TV. I mean, it's, just, it's so broad. Uh, all the different stuff that that you can watch. So what have you been watching lately? One of the things I started using was they they kind of curate playlists. And so they had curated one that said it was like the best documentaries of 2020. So I was just like, well, I wonder what's in there. And so I was watching Planet Chicken. You did an episode on the history of the chicken. And so it's got some of the some of the same information, but it's it's an hour long. So it's got a lot more in-depth stuff. And I tell you what, there's a lot to learn about chickens. You will be surprised. <laughs> well, I think it's really cool that, you know, they don't just find the best documentaries. They are doing their best to help you discover them, too. Even though I know I'm the history guy and I do love history, I also really enjoy, like, science documentaries. I like nature documentaries. Uh, they do a lot of stuff that's current economics and politics as well. Uh, so it's uh, whatever you want to want to do, whether you uh, that, that you want to learn about, there's something to learn on Magellan TV and, and in very digestible formats. There's a lot of really cool space stuff on there, which is really interesting to me. Uh, one that I was watching lately, it's called the Palais de Papes, uh, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong because it's French, but it is it, it is the fortress in Avignon where the French popes were. So when the, when the when the papacy was in in France, this is where the popes were, and it is the world's largest Gothic fortress fortress. And it this I, I I would love to go see it. it. It is a really fantastic, amazing building. But they they really go down into granular detail about how this was built at the time, which is just such a fascinating question uh, because you look at this something that massive uh, built in that period, like how you know how how would we build that today? 
uh, and and to to sit and, and watch the process of it is, is it's really an interesting fortress. It's got a lot of interesting history, and it's fascinating to tie that with the architecture, which really understands the time. And so it's it's just been a lot of fun to watch. I, you know, I I, uh, I you and I play Minecraft. You know, we I build castles all the time. It's really fascinating to see how a real castle is built. That's try.magellantv.com slash history guy. Next up, the history guy talks about Stanley Wayman, the fabulous fraud from Brooklyn. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the history guy. In 1913, a young man presented himself to New York society as the newly appointed consular agent to Point d'Aubray, a small country south of Morocco. The introduction got him into some of the nicest restaurants in town where he met many of the luminaries of the city. It was only as he started to run up tabs at some of those restaurants that someone thought to check his story and found out that not only was he not appointed consular agent to Point d'Aubray, but that Point d'Aubray didn't even exist. The man was Stanley Jacob Weinberg, a clerk from Brooklyn who simply decided that being a clerk in Brooklyn was dull and that he would prefer to be somebody else. He spent time in jail for fraud, but that did not seem to dampen that desire to be somebody else. While he was born Stanley Jacob Weinberg, he went by many names. The press called him the fabulous fraud from Brooklyn or the great deceiver, although later in life he preferred Stanley Clifford Wayman. He was clever and confident in his masquerades, able to fool even secret service agents. Yet he never made an effort to alter his appearance and was usually caught because someone in the press or police recognized him. He was, for the most part, not motivated by financial gain and notably passed up opportunities where he could have gotten far more money from his impersonations. He was remarkable in that he impersonated for impersonation's sake and simply enjoyed being someone other than himself. Doctors diagnosed him with various psychological ailments, but of his obsession, he said, one man's life is a boring thing. I lived many lives. I'm never bored. For example, in 1925, he read in the newspaper that there was to be a conference of physicians of every sort to be held at the Middlesex College of Medicine and Surgery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He put on a stylish suit, carried a bag of the sort that a doctor would carry, and rode the train to Cambridge. There he presented himself as Dr. Alan Stanley Wyman of the New York State Lunacy Commission. He chatted with other doctors about his ideas for improvements in psychiatric treatment in prisons, and on that score he could easily pass himself off as well-informed, as he had spent nearly a third of his adult life in prisons and asylums, serving time for his various frauds. In Cambridge, he was so convincing that he was asked to speak at the evening banquet. His speech was said to be well-received and vigorously applauded. When he hopped back on the train for Brooklyn, the attendees of the conference had no idea that they had been had. He was, according to an article in The New Yorker, only discovered when he was picked up weeks later by police on the charge of impersonating a lawyer, and police found the newspaper article about the conference in his case and asked him about it. While he was often broke, he did do legitimate work, and when he had money, he would spend that on his vast wardrobe, which he would then use in his various impersonations. On one occasion, he styled himself an envoy from Romania. Wearing a fantastic naval outfit covered with gold braid and an admiral's hat, he telegraphed the Navy that the Queen of Romania had asked that he send the Navy her greetings via an inspection of a Navy ship. He was picked up by a launch and given every courtesy as he toured the battleship USS Wyoming. Overjoyed with his visit, he invited the officers of the ship to a gala reception at the Hotel Astor. He told the hotel to send a bill to him at the Romanian consulate. The dinner was somewhat spoiled, however, as advanced publicity for the event had alerted the FBI, who came and arrested him. 
He spent two years in jail for the stunt. He masqueraded as a French naval officer named Lieutenant Sincere, and in that guise was invited to a stag party thrown by U.S. Vice President Thomas R. Marshall. He dressed as a Navy admiral and showed up at an army review at the Brooklyn Armory. The Major General was about to take him on an inspection of the troops when a detective, who had been seeking him for another crime, arrested him. When he read in the paper that a princess from Afghanistan was in New York and was frustrated in her attempt to meet the President, he showed up at her door claiming to be the U.S. Undersecretary of State, there to arrange her visit. In Washington, he managed to bluff his way in to introduce the princess and her sons first to Secretary of State Charles Evan Hughes, and then to see President Warren G. Harding. The events caused a minor international incident as the British had been trying to prevent Harding from meeting with Afghan officials. When film star Rudolph Valentino died in 1926, Wayman read in the paper about his devastated fiancée, actress Polo Negri. He grabbed his doctor bag and showed up at her hotel, claiming to be Valentino's personal physician, and said, Rudy would have wanted me to take care of you. He escorted the grieving actress to the funeral. When police revealed him as an impostor, she refused to press charges, saying that she had never gotten better medical care. When Queen Marie of Romania visited America in 1926, the press was clamoring for an interview, but no one could get in. Knowing his legendary skills, the newspaper of the Evening Graphic hired Wayman, who, presenting himself as an Undersecretary of State, gained access to the Queen and got the interview. While his impersonations were usually harmless and sometimes quite humorous, he was arrested for two charges that hurt his reputation with the public. During the Second World War, he was apparently running a school to try to teach young men how to avoid the draft by faking illnesses. When the FBI broke in the door of his classroom, he was heard to say, class dismissed. It was a serious charge during wartime, and he was sent to prison for seven years. In 1954, he was convicted of trying to obtain a home improvement loan on a home that didn't exist. Such pedestrian larceny just seemed beneath him. But in the extraordinary life of the man who spent so much time being anyone other than himself, perhaps the most shocking story was the final chapter. In August 1960, Stanley, being no one other than himself, was the night clerk at the Dunwoody Hotel in New York City. Two armed men entered and demanded that the 70-year-old clerk hand over the money box. He could have given it to them, no one would have blamed him, but he refused. When one tried to grab the box, he held on. It is difficult to know what was running through the mind of a person like Stanley Wayman. Maybe, some contend, he saw the chance to actually be one of the heroes he had so often impersonated. His bullet-riddled body was found the next day. The New York Daily News reported that the great deceiver ended his career dramatically as a genuine hero. Stanley is in some important ways quite different from Thompson, because for Thompson, you know, he clearly did this work for money. This was how he was living his life and how he was running his job. But for Wayman, as you mentioned in the episode, he did it for fun. He did it because it was exciting and entertaining. And he seemed to do it just at the, at the drop of a hat, seized an opportunity and he took it. Um, which I think in some ways, even though he spent quite a bit of time in jail for various frauds, makes him a little bit more of a unique inspiration than Thompson. Because I think a lot of us understand that idea of we're being we're bored with being just one person. And we would love to have the the ability to just step outside and be, well, today I'm going to be somebody else. And I'm going to commit to that completely. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting idea because I think it runs through everybody's head at some point, you know. But I mean, like, if you know, could I put on a uniform, walk over to the airbase over here and get them to salute me? And he, you know, he 
he did. He just did it. So he's he he's such an interesting historical character because you know, frankly, he he might have simply been mentally ill. I mean, he might have literally just been crazy, uh, or he might have just been bored or whatever it is. But he he his motivation is kind of so hard to pick out. But I mean, it, it feels like there's a little bit of that in all of this. Is this this idea? You know, this is where I am in life. What if I had done something differently? So this idea that he could, you know, show up at a medical convention with nothing but a bag and convince them that he is a good enough doctor that they put him up on stage. It's just absolutely extraordinary. It's such a it's such an interesting story. So I, I get the feeling, you know, when you when you study him, it doesn't seem like he was a bad person at all. It doesn't seem like his intent was ever to hurt anybody. Uh, and it doesn't even seem like he was a prankster. He's 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 not even really that type. It really just seems like this was fun to him. And he had he had his his wardrobe so he could be who he wanted to be. And he a lot of times, I mean, you know, he just kind of hears a story, and so he goes to be the the undersecretary of state uh, uh -huh. to help to help her uh, the the <laughs> princess meet princess the president. Stella, yeah. uh, uh, he didn't. It's not like he was like, ah, oh, I'm planning these elaborate plots, um, which makes me think of uh, the movie Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio, where he clearly yeah, yeah very similar. Which is, of course, based on a real person. And yeah, this is uh, except that you know he was using that for for money, and Stan Weeman never really seemed to see that as a reason for money. But uh, I don't know. Horace Devere Cole, you know, impersonated someone in order to get on the the HMS uh, Dreadnought, and in order to pull it as a prank. I mean, he wanted to brag about it as a prank. But Stanley Weyman got in to see the vice president as portraying himself as a naval officer, uh, and it didn't seem like he was doing that for anything other than it was fun to him to pretend to be somebody else. And so I think that most people want to, you know, like to play dress up now and again on Halloween or whatever. He just he just had some sort of compulsion to do that all the time. So at best, you could say he's really, really interesting. I'm not sure why he did what he did, but you can see the kind of comic humor in what he did. And I, I kind of wish, you know, that they would make a movie about that uh, because he's, he's, just, he's, you know, he's not a con artist. He's just he's just someone who who is trying to enjoy life. I think the the fact that he uh, doesn't have very obvious motives um, is probably something that has kept people from wanting to make that script or make that movie because it's it's easier with you know Leonardo DiCaprio that he was gonna or in that movie that he's just gonna lie his way to to be he's you know he's essentially just a guy and he's like ah oh, well uh, now I'm I'm a doctor or a lawyer and I'm gonna make my or a pilot and I'm gonna make my money that way we, it's it's easy for us to understand why he did that. And for Stanley, yeah, he just, he wanted to do it and he did it. And it's incredibly, incredibly entertaining from the outside because he really, you know, out of a, in a with a sense of innocence is that he didn't, yeah. wasn't trying to get to the vice president for any particular reason, just <laughs> apparently he could, um, does freak you out a little bit sometimes. He's like, man, if you go in with, uh, if you just go in and say you, you're who you are and do it with enough. Uh... Was it easier then or would it be, would it be easier today? I honestly, I honestly don't know if you could argue, you know, and, and whether you know people are who knows you know it's it's really interesting because he's you know kind of like titanic thompson you never know if you're talking to one of these you, know, you assume that people are kind of you know what they appear to be and he could be i mean it could be dangerous because he was at times masquerading say as a physician and you, know, you might give bad advice uh, uh but uh, i he never seems to have wanted to do anybody any harm he never seems to have wanted to enrich himself any more than to have fun with it he seemed to actually care about the people uh, that he was I interacting with. 
Uh, but, I mean, who doesn't one day want to be the, the dashing French pilot who goes to the vice president's bachelor party? <laughs> and all, all you have to do is just is just act like you act like you are supposed to be there it is i yeah. think for for most people um for one just to, just to be able to have that confidence i i can't even imagine it i uh, I, I think i wouldn't be able to stay in character for something like that i'd get too too nervous oh, about yeah, yeah, being caught out right but he yeah, he yeah, was able takes, to do yeah. it and yeah unique right and a very you got to be very smart to to do what he did um and it, i just i I don't know. He's he's so interesting, and you want to you kind of want to understand him, but I don't think uh, I don't maybe maybe he's not meant to be fully understood. Just uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, he was he was reasonably famous in his time. And some of they call him the fabulous fraud from from Brooklyn, uh, for the same reason is that people just almost saw it as performance art. I mean, I, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, people just never seemed to think that he was uh, ill mannered. So it is it's too bad that he was eventually caught in an actual fraud scheme because it seems so beneath yeah. what he was doing. But I guess he had to pay bills too or buy buy outfits, right? Uh, and that's too bad. But it's also so astounding that he that the way that he died, uh, you know, showed you know that he's not really what you expect of him ever, and that he you know that he died trying to prevent the robbery. It just it stuns you because it doesn't seem like that's what would be in character for him until you look at him and you say maybe that's exactly what's in character for him. Maybe that he was always trying to be was a hero. So he's all I can say about him uh, as a lesson or whatever is that he is just a fascinating historical personage. Just what he did is stuff that it's kind of crazy that he was able to do that. And you just got to say, we, you know, we don't really know. We don't know why. We just knew that he did these things that are just hysterical uh, and and just got away with it because he could. And I think that, I mean, one of the things that I think we try to talk about when we talk about history on our channel is that it is about, sometimes that's enough, is just being an entertaining and a good story. Being, being a good story. Yeah. That's enough That's enough to be remembered. And it doesn't have to be necessarily, you know, these, these life-changing events. And we have to know all these dates about how it, you know, changed eras and stuff like that. This was a guy who, I mean, certainly he was a product of his time, but he also, uh, it would be much harder to constantly pretend to be somebody, you know, if you were expecting it to be uh, a catfish episode or something like that, I think. But he he managed to do it and was able to be who he was. And now I am glad that we have his story to tell. And even if, you know, none of us are going to be able to be that guy that we can. Yeah, we tell it. I mean, it just, it's, nothing else is just interesting to listen to and that that's uh, that, that's something about history uh, as opposed to what we see in fiction is that you know you don't always have a clear cut is he a good guy is he a bad guy uh, um, that seems to be you know you know movies always seem to go that way you got the good guys and got the bad guys and, and that's you know and that's not how history sometimes history is just ambiguous you know we don't you know we don't really know what motivated this guy uh, we just know he was what he was and and uh, that's worth remembering so, I mean, it wouldn't be interesting if he was your Uncle Stanley. You know, you would never know who was showing up at your door. Right. <laughs> um, and we we talked a little bit about how confidence plays a big role in that. And I think it played a big role for both for Stanley and yes. for Titanic Thompson. Yes. Is that they both, you can't cheat someone out of something if you're not willing to commit to that, to what you're doing. And while I think that confidence mattered a lot, I think for both of them too, you have to wonder how much did luck have to do with it? Uh, you know, I think, I mean, like Titanic Thompson said, don't ever rely on luck. Uh, but uh, but also, no matter how well you plan, 
I mean, what if Al Capone had seen him palm that lemon? Uh, you know, we, he might have lost his hand there. So I, I think certainly both of them to get away with all they got away with, uh, you know, had to have some luck. Uh, but, uh, and who knows how much of anything in history is based on, you know, luck per se. Uh, both of them were, for the odd things that they were doing, both of them were good at what they did. And I think that you, you know, you have to, you, maybe you're always going to depend on some luck to get somewhere. But, uh, but I mean, the, the lesson from both of them really in the end is that if you practice, you can do things that are extraordinary. You, you know, whether you should do that, it's a different question. But, uh, but what you can do is just absolutely amazing. So, you know, again, what if Stanley Weyman had been the doctor that he, that he ended up masquerading himself to be? You know, uh, you know he might have been a brilliant doctor. If he was smart enough to convince other doctors that he did, yeah. and and he didn't he didn't change his face at all. So the police, if the police saw him on TV, or they're like, oh wait, we better go put a stop to this before he. Uh, you you think in this day and age when you know you can just shoot his face out to every every phone or something like that 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 it makes it harder to do that but he he still was able to just walk up to these people and he never was trying to he never seemed to be pretending to like be some specific person like he wasn't like ah i am trying to take over this person's identity he's just like oh, i'm the undersecretary of state you know he hadn't yeah. checked who the actual undersecretary yeah, is yeah he wasn't trying to impersonate and take someone's bank account he was yeah and you know, part of it is, I guess, we just tend to uh, trust people to to say they are what they claim to be, you know, and uh, and uh, so it's kind of too bad that there are people who take advantage of that. But that's that's really what they were taking advantage of. Both of them uh, is that they you know they assume that people would uh, would just believe them because why wouldn't you? Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed these stories of forgotten history, and if you did, you can find more on our YouTube channel at The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered. We will continue to release podcasts every other week, so stick around if you want more podcasts on forgotten history. You can also find us on our website, thehistoryguy.net, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Rumble, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.